Here we are again, September the 25th, 2016, lecture discussion number 254 on the Book of Romans. Before I can get started, I'd like to uh, tell everybody here on the Internet especially that, yes, I, I do get packages. I do, those of you who watch by the vast Internet audience. And uh, John and Norma sent me stuff. Yes, that's right. I could I could open it and throw little packages to people that get questions right today. Now, see, see the value, and it is a lot of stuff here. It's really cool. He he sent me uh, pecan pie. So if you if you say you get two questions right in a row, you get pecan pie. What church would do that? Huh? This is this is really terrific. He uh, he sent me a diet coke, and it, it says on it somewhere. Let me see what it says. Uh, Oh, I thought there, oh yes. Take as directed. <laughs> Clearly, it's medicine, right? There, there's a validation that it's medicine. Those of you who think I just do it because I like it. No, it's necessary. And there's, there's a, uh, good seed. So, John and Norma, we really appreciate your humor and, and your gifts. And trust me, this place will eat all of it before we leave today. Every bit of it. There won't, won't be none left. Okay, September 25th, 2016, lecture discussion number 254. Naturally, uh, I'm sorry, on the Book of Romans. I should make that point out. This is where we are. It's the Book of Romans. And, and, and being that we find ourselves at Revelation 14 and Revelation 17 and Daniel 7, 8, 9, and 10, that's where we are today. If you have not been here for the previous 253 lectures, we have uh, finally made it to Revelation 17. And that means we have to back up to Revelation 14, and of course we have to back up to Daniel 7, 8, 9, and 10. And people often ask me, where's the Romans and all of that? And that's an excellent question, and the question is certainly uh, appreciated, actually, because it gives me an opportunity to tell you. Romans is involved in Revelation and Daniel at Revelation, I'm sorry, at Romans 9, 10, and 11. That is where Israel rejects Christ, the rejection of the Messiahship and the kingship of Christ by the nation of Israel. That is the discussion of Romans 9, or 7, 8, 9, I'm sorry, 9, 10, and 11. Paul takes on the rejection and the eventual restoration of Israel. There's a theology out there, shouldn't call it a theology, there is a position out there that says that Israel has been replaced and that, of course, is contrary to Scripture. Israel has not been replaced. Israel will be restored. And this is the discussion of that restoration and all the elements uh, and all the details in it. And so that is why uh, this is a Romans discussion. This, of course, is the theme beneath where we have also been, which is the woman who was brought before Christ to be executed for adultery. Remember that? John 8, uh, 1 through 12. She is involved in this discussion of Revelation 17 and, of course, Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, and Ezekiel as well. So when we discussed her, the adulterous woman brought before Christ to be executed for adultery, John 8, 1 through 12, that placed us into this discussion in the beginning. At least that was the birth pangs of it. And also the woman who is bleeding to death at Luke 8, 41 through 48. Remember that woman. If you haven't been here, she comes forward from the crowd. She's dying. She's bleeding to death. A woman dying cannot be cured, seeks life everywhere. She spends all of her money. She consults all the wisdom that she can find. Clearly, she's wealthy. She continues to bleed to death. Finally, she's dying. She's hopeless. I imagined that her vitality has ebbed tremendously. This is the last of her methods of any kind of hope, but she knows that she can he get healed if she'll just grab the blue tassels of Christ. And because she is uh, unclean, she must disguise herself. And so she comes up behind Christ in the multitude, grasps, touches his blue tassel on the fringe, if you will, of his talent, and she lives immediately. And she knew, as I've said previously, that that would occur. How did she figure it out? So that is how... That is how, and, and that is some of the path of getting us to Revelation, Revelation 17. And then you also, again, back to that adulterous woman. She's surrounded by her enemies, 
who have come to condemn her. They're witnesses to her adultery, and they're also going to condemn her for her adultery. Do you understand what I just said? How are they witnesses to her adultery? They're participants of her adultery. She's a temple prostitute, and they're going to sacrifice her right here and attempt to fool Christ. Well, she is representative. So is the bleeding woman. They're both representative. Death is certain for her. Read Psalm 22 and see the surrounded, the hind of the morning surrounded. And you begin to get this image. And death is certain for this woman. There's no possibility. And she too, though, is saved by the Ancient of Days. She is saved by Christ himself. And a remarkable portrayal of Israel. Each woman portrays the nation of Israel in part. That is why it's Romans 9, 10, and 11. And you might remember that the adulterous woman sent us to Genesis 1, 3. Because Christ, after he essentially saves her from a certain execution, he calls himself the light of life. He says, I am the light of life. That's Genesis 1, 3. The light of life. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, that's John 1, or 8, 12. But it sends us to Genesis 1, 3. The light of life is the light that brings life. It is the source of life. And in Genesis 1, let there be light. And because there was that light, because that is Christ himself, he is the light of life, then we get um, life on earth. And that eventually takes us to Aaron, clothed in blue, on the feast day of covering, what you might call Yom Kippur. Because Aaron is covered in blue, the girl or the woman reaches for the blue tassels. Aaron is in front of the Ark of the Testimony as he has gone through the veil. And above the Ark of the Testimony, between the cherubim, is the light of life. And of course, the bleeding woman led us to Numbers 15.38 and Deuteronomy 22.12, where blue tassels and blue fringes are prominently explained. Again, Aaron has a turban that is attached to him with blue cord. He has an ephod that is all blue, a vestment. He has a a breastplate. He has a plate of holiness that is attached with blue cord. He goes through the veil that is woven of blue, purple, and scarlet threads, and it is incredibly thick, and it has uh, depictions of cherubim on it, and he does all of that again on the feast day of covering. So, that is got us to Revelation 17. Specifically, the blue, purple, and scarlet moved us to Revelation 17. And that is today's subject. Last week, uh, when we were here, we read Revelation 17. If you haven't, I don't know if it's in your bulletin or not. I assume that it is because the lovely Lori is efficient. Revelation 17. In case you think that we don't communicate. You would be right if you thought that. Occasionally we do, and we're talking about well, how much roofing we're going. We were supposed to roof the addition last week, but it rained, so we didn't. And then the next day it didn't rain, and we thought, wow, we'd hate to waste a day roofing when it's not raining. So we didn't do it that day either. <laughs> That's what we call communicating, sitting on the couch, looking out the window. I don't know how I got to that. Book of Revelation 17, that's what we did last week. We read it, and whenever you read Revelation, especially 17, you are now, uh, the book of Daniel cannot be avoided. You're at Daniel 7, 8, 9, and 10, attempting to dissolve the book of Revelation to figure out what it's saying without the book of Daniel is an exercise of inefficiency at best. You're not going to get very far. It's barrenness at worst. So, that's where we were last week. And I started going through the list. This is the first six or seven pieces of the list of about 40 items. Um, and we didn't obviously have room to put them all on the board. And this is as far as we got. The purple scarlet harlot, the great harlot. She is clothed in purple and scarlet. She's missing blue. The woman reaches for the blue tassels. That's not a coincidence. 
that the one thing she is missing is blue. But she has purple and scarlet, and she sits upon a scarlet beast. That's not on the board. And John the Apostle is carried away in the spirit into the wilderness by one of the seven angels of Revelation 16. There's seven angels in Revelation 16. One of those angels grabs John and carries him away into the wilderness. Christ, of course, into the wilderness. Israel, of course, into the wilderness. And, and John sees the great harlot no longer sitting on many waters. She's now sitting on the scarlet beast. The angel tells John, the reason that I have taken you into the wilderness is to see this woman sitting on this red beast, crimson beast. I wanted to show you the great prostitute, the great whore of Babylon, the mother of all apostasy, sitting on this uh, red beast, and this is the beginning of her judgment. This woman is to be judged, this entity is to be judged. And the angel described her to John uh, before, again, as sitting on many waters, as someone with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth drank her wine of, of fornication and became drunk, were made drunk with her wine. Now, she's on a scarlet beast. And that's a new component. We learned something really important. The beast is scarlet. Last Sunday, again, Lecture 253, I presented Isaiah 118 as a solution to the meaning of scarlet as it applies to the beast. One interesting thing I left out, and I shouldn't have, so Isaiah 1.18 begins this way. Come, let us reason together. God says this quite a few times. This is probably the place that is the most interesting, I think, to, to us. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. He's asking you to come with him and reason something out with him. Now that, of course, is contrary to the contemporary church of our time. The contemporary church of our time is the Laodicean church, or what is also known as the vomit church of Revelation 3.16. The Laodicean vomit church of our of my generation, of your generation. It rose up in the last 75, 80 years. This church that we see around us now does all that it can to cast aside reason. Certainly, reason with God. Reasoning with God is cast aside. And it's replaced with a sensual experience-based performance. And here at Isaiah 1.18, God says, Come, let us reason together. See also Hebrews 5.13-14. through 14. He does the same thing. Discernment, maturity, wisdom is from the practicing of reason, it says. Hebrews 5. God wills for us to think with him. Note that word, think. In order to learn what he says and why he says it. The verse in Isaiah 118 says, Though your skins are like scarlet, so we learn something there, sins are like scarlet. I have a scarlet beast. Though your skins, sins, did I say skins? This means I need medicine. Medicine always works. Some kind of elixir. I'm the only one that has it. You can't get it anywhere, but with, okay, Costco. But other than them and me, what's it? Sam's Club too? You're right. What's that? I know I'm not. I'm not a very good salesman. Have you ever seen my book, How to Sell Real Estate? Make $100 in 25 years? You've never seen that book? Okay. It's also a, How to Succeed in Flipping Houses. 
if you're ever going to go into a flipping house seminar, please come and talk to me. You're good grief. Don't fall for that. What's that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have a red heifer, as Bill points out. That's one of the most amazing pieces of Scripture in the Old Testament is the ashes of the red heifer. And it's on the list. Though your sins are like scarlet, sin is like scarlet. We asked last week, how so? The beast is scarlet. Why is the beast scarlet? Reason it out. That's what he says. We will reason this out, you and I together. That's a promise of God. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Reason that out, he says. God said this. Sins are like scarlet. Scarlet and sins are linked in that they are both very deep. Scarlet is a deep, deep, thick color. The words have a connotation of many repeated coats of paint, to use a modern simile. Permanence due to immersion in dye, red dye or ink, over and over and over again. Until the stain, the redness is now penetrated to the point of being elemental to the material. But God says, even though that is the condition, that is your sin condition, I will change it to white as snow. So, skins are to scarlet as white is to snow. There's your mathematical formula. Snow white is a redundancy. A little humor there. Not very much at all. I got that. The explanation, if it has to be made, does strip the effort away from the joke. I got that too. Okay. Ask this, what then is exactly specifically required to remove uh, this red ink, this intrusion, for lack of a better, to use an analogy again? What is it going to take to take or to get red ink that is that thick, that uh, permeated, that marinated out of a white cloth that has been soaked into the dye thousands and thousands and thousands of times. In the case of sin, millions and millions and millions of times. How do I get this permanent ink, if you will, out of this white cloth? What does it, What is required? What does God have to do? I will skip a step. It is, it is necessary for God to be something to get this red cloth that is us back to white. We're supposed to be white. We've become scarlet because of our sins. What's it take to get us back to white? How many of us are there, by the way, that are in this condition? Never raise your hand here. Everyone who is in this condition, raise your hand. Never raise your hand here. Good. All of us are in this condition, every single one of us, and we have to be restored to white in order to live eternally. That is how God describes life, is life eternal. Life that is temporal is not life. Life requires eternity to be life by definition. The only way this can be accomplished is the person who does it must be omniscient. There's more evidence that Christ therefore has to be God. If Christ is the one that is covering the sin, then he has to be God. Omniscience is necessary to turn something perfectly clean, to be white as snow. Notice how I said it has to be perfectly clean. Who is the determiner of something that is perfectly clean? Someone that is perfect. Again, you have to have omniscience and you have to have perfection. You are therefore who? Creator God. There is no other way this can be. Yet, as I said, the contemporary church of vomit will tell you that Christ is not God over and over and over again. It's what they do. They can't help themselves. They like doing it. They do it on purpose. Now, there are many symbols in Scripture that uh, describe sin. One that is likely being the most prominent is leprosy. Leprosy starts as a very small 
intrusion, a very small dot on the skin, eventually it turns you completely what? The leprosy of the Old Testament. White. Leprosy has whiteness. It's also involved in that symbol. Exodus 4, 6 through 7, Numbers 12, 10. Moses' hand goes inside, comes out, goes inside. The whiteness of the leprosy is depicted. Miriam, the whiteness of her leprosy, Numbers 12, 10. Okay, got all that so far? Trying to catch you up. Anyway, the beast is scarlet. The great mother of whores is sitting on a beast that is the beast of sin, the man of sin. And so what does it mean that she is sitting on this beast of sin? Well, we need more information, don't we? So let's go read Revelation chapter 12. And I hope that caught most of you up. I see a few here that haven't been here for the previous 200, and let me count again, 253 lectures. So I hope I got you. You, the rest of the congregation is going, if you could have done that in five, 15 minutes, why did we have 253 lectures? Well, okay. It's a hobby of mine, I guess, more than I get pumpkin rolls out of this. Ooh, I shouldn't have said that. What is it about these holy pumpkin rolls, then? You will find out. Revelation 12, 1 through 12. Here we go. Now, a great sign, those of you who took the time to read Revelation 17 while I went through the, uh, what I call backing the bus up to get to all the loose passengers, uh, you'll hopefully see the significance that is occurring in Revelation 12, 1 and Revelation 17, the congruencies, the uh, connectivity. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. When God calls something a great sign, then slow down. This is going to be a great sign. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. So now I've got another woman. I've got a great whore, a great harlot woman, and I've got another woman. And this woman is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. Why? Where will I go to figure out why she's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet? Back to Genesis, the greater and the lesser light, right? And on her head, a garland of 12 stars. Why not 20 stars? Why not 6 stars? Why 12 stars? Who is this woman? Why does she have 12 stars? How many tribes of Israel? Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, whenever God says, behold, stop. My goodness, something incredible, astonishing is going to happen. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. There's your Revelation 17 connection, right? And seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. Somebody earlier was asking me about stars. Well, here you go. Stars of heaven. He drew a third of, a star, of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman. Pay attention to the dragon is standing. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Question is, is whose throne is that really fast? It's going to come up again. Did you think that that's God's throne or the child's throne? Submit your papers. If you submit the right answer, free M&M. Nothing is free but the grace of God, right? So they're not free. There's tentacles attached to them. Some manipulatively, manipulative trick. Where was I as a professional? Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Okay, we're going into the wilderness again, right? Start accumulating the pieces that are directly resurfacing in Revelation 17. Where she has a place prepared by God. God prepares a place for her. 
that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. How about that? War can break out in heaven. What kind of war is it? How do they fight? Is it physical or non-physical? Do I have disembodiment going on up there? Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. See how it references back to the woman. So the great dragon was cast out, and that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast with him. Now I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, how loud do you think that is? How loud is loud? Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of God, of our God, and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, so this is a time mark. When Satan is cast to the earth, something incredible happens. This is a delineation, demarcation. Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and, and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. These are people that did, had no fear of death. How do you get like that? Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. And that continues and uh, we'll read it on uh, next week or so. So the great sign appears in heaven, appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. She has a child. There's another sign. It's a red dragon. So far then, we have two women, one's a harlot, the other has a child. The dragon stood before the woman to devour her male child. The woman fled into the wilderness for 1,260 days, which is three and a half, uh, 360 day years. Those are uh, Hebrew years. So two women, a red dragon, and a red beast. When you combine Revelation 13, or 12 with Revelation 17. Now, that's just a very shallow, brief synopsis of that, right? There's a lot more there, a tremendous amount more, almost ridiculous how much is there. I just condensed it to make it a little bit coherent, which is against my better judgment, as you know. I get letters all the time, not nice ones like I did from John and Norma, that says, you don't make any sense. Exactly. That's right. That's my plan. Hooray. That's what I'm trying to do. I want you to figure it out. I've learned that. It does me no good to figure it out for you. You have to figure it out. So you have all of these pieces. Start putting them together yourselves. So, two women, a red dragon and a red beast. One woman sitting on the beast. The other woman flees into the wilderness. She is carried there by a great eagle. And she is safe. And the dragon, he becomes angry over that. And he goes after her offspring. Her offspring are those who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Next week we'll delve into that a little bit more specifically. But just kind of keep it together as best you can for today. And so now we go and pick up this narrative at chapter 13, which I believe gives us the key to solving the meanings of Revelation chapter 17, which is where we are today. Have we got there yet? No. Welcome to Bible study. So now Revelation 13. Then I stood on the sands of the sea. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. Is that what your Bible says? Because if it does, that would be wrong. Cross out I, because it's not I. Back here we have the dragon stood. Let me finish. And the dragon was, I'll just finish the chapter 13. And the dragon was enraged with a woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Then he stood on the sands of the sea. That's how it really reads. Most Bibles make that mistake and give you the impression that it is John. The dragon is doing the standing. He stands before the woman, and now he stands before the sea. Or the abyss, actually. So he stood on the sands of the sea. And I saw a monster. The word is literally monster. A beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Back to Revelation 17. And on his horns, ten crowns. And on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. This is the red beast again. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So there we go. He, the dragon, stood on the sands of the sea. If your translation says, I, then all you need to do is back up to the context of verse 17, and you'll see that he is what is obvious there. The evidence in the word translation in the previous subject demonstrate that it should be the red dragon. He, the reference to the red dragon. The red dragon is calling up out of the abyss. Have to read 11.7. Then the witness, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Bottomless pit, the abyss. So 11.7 of Revelation helps us here in 13. One, the red dragon calling up out of the abyss, the pit, a monster, a red beast. Literally, again, the word means monster, a vicious killing machine. I shouldn't say machine, a, a vicious killing person. The scarlet beast comes out of the abyss. He's called out. So, we'll start making another list. Get rid of this list. That's from last week. New list. This is another list. It is not the list from last week at all. So, this is a secondary list. Are we going to have a tertiary list? Yes. So many lists, we just get sick of lists. List maker is going to list. Have a woman. Oops. Have a woman with a male child. She's Israel. Unquestionably, without dispute, she is Israel. The child is Christ. Christ child. The dragon and his angels, that's Satan. That's even admitted and explained. The one-third of the stars that fall are his, the dragon's angels. I always ask this. How many angels went with Satan? One-third. How many angels were deceived by Satan? It's not the same question. May I ask this? How many of you are following Satan? Don't raise your hands. Don't scare the people next to you. How many of you are deceived by Satan? Okay, go ahead, raise your hands. Never raise your hand. Almost made one or two of you do it. We are all deceived by Satan. Not all of us follow Satan. How many angels were deceived by his lie, the first lie of Satan? One-third went with him. What about the two-thirds? 
How'd they do? Did they believe him? Were they fooled? The dragon and his angel, Satan with the fallen one-third. So I need to make sure you know that these are fallen as opposed to what? Unfallen. So the question really is, is are there unfallen deceived? Satan is unable to kill Israel, who is the woman. And so he turns to slaughter Christians, both Jew and Gentile, because I will have Jew, Jewish Christians, right? And they are unprotected. They're not in the wilderness. This is Israel in the wilderness. Now, a lot of speculation about how God does this, and I think that's very appropriate. He's got an entire nation in the wilderness, and he has the Antichrist with millions of uh, military capabilities with regard to infantry, and he has all kinds of modern equipment, and he's trying to get Israel, who is in the wilderness. How does God protect them? Everybody wants to make it. Uh, he's going to put them in some little place that, that for some reasons, uh, uh, F-16s or F-22s or the Russian equivalent are not able to bomb them there. Does that make sense to you? Is there such a place? How about a, a Russian Scud missile? Can it get inside of Petra? Basra would be more correct. If you've heard that kind of stuff, they will be secluded in this little place. How many of them are there? There's millions of them, Jews in the wilderness. How does he protect them? Okay, if you wrestle with that, start by going like this first. Okay. He doesn't do it with a natural means, does he? does it with a supernatural means. God is very smart. He will come up with a really cool way of doing it, much to our great surprise. So where am I? Jewish Gentiles that are the followers of Christ, they're now the target. And Satan, is, they, Satan has diverted, diverted to them. Now keep in mind the book of Revelation was not written. It is not written sequentially. It is not chronological. What do I mean by that? It's not in order. If you're reading this thinking there's a time sequence, it's going to make you really frustrated. It's important to establish the accurate timeline, uh, something that I'm not doing right now. But it can be done. This is a matter of the Hebrew principle of recurrence. If you've been to this church for a long time, you know that I bring this up a lot because this is the way the Bible is done. It's mostly written by Jews. And what, what the Bible will do, the way the Jews describe things, God did it on purpose. When the Bible describes an event, when a Jewish writer describes an event, following this description of an event will be another description of the same event. And if you start thinking they're chronological... No, they're not. What they are is I have some information, and then I have more information about this subject. That's called recurrence. A more, another more detailed description of the same event. The creation week of Genesis is the primary example of Hebrew recurrence. Something is described, and then more detail is given. If you try to make this all sequential, uh, you're going to have a mess. You have to understand that this is a Hebrew methodology. There is also the Hebrew principle of double reference. There are two verses that are sequential. There are, and they can, and they often do, however, refer to different time periods. In other words, I'll have verse 1, I'll have verse 2, I'll read verse 1, I'll read verse 2, and I'll assume that they happen immediately after one another. And they don't. They can be separated by thousands of years. So understanding double reference, understanding the Hebrew principle of recurrence, critically important. Trying to go through Revelation not knowing those two things are true, big wampum heapum problems. This is why uh, Martin Luther looked at Revelation and said, no, it doesn't belong in the Bible. He did. He wanted to throw out um, Revelation. I believe he wanted to throw out the book of James because he could not reconcile the book of James with the book of Romans, which is not really that difficult. But it was tough for Martin Luther. 
Psalm 22, just to go on a tangent, and I love tangents. They're necessary for doing roof systems, break walls. I mentioned that last week. I'm defending tangents. Psalm 22, that everybody understands that Christ said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They always assume, almost ubiquitous, almost universal, that that God, Christ is referencing himself. He is not doing that. He would say, otherwise, myself, myself, why have I forsaken myself? He is inside of and he is not separable from the triune Godhead. So he'd never say that about himself. If you understand recurrence and double reference, you can get through Psalm 22. Psalm 22.1 is something that Israel says, not that God says. So understand who the reference is. You also get through Isaiah 7 the same way. So both of those passages are solved by double reference. And this creates the fact of this creates great problems for expositors who are unaware of it. All that to say the book of Revelation, if anywhere it's here, requires a firm grasp of Hebrew communication rules or writing rules. The whole point is for you today is to make no assumptions as to the order. It's not appropriate yet for you to do so. We'll get there. Okay? So notice that I have seven heads and ten horns. Remember that kept up, kept coming up? Seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns in Revelation 17. So seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns. So, what's, what's that mean? It looks like the beast has seven heads and ten horns, and his horns ten crowns. And on his head a blasphemous name. How much of that refers to the person that is the Antichrist? How much of it does not? Double reference. Does that make sense? You're looking at me as you usually do. The man is crazy. Do you understand that that verse? Let me read it again. Then he stood, the red dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast monster a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. How much of that is the Antichrist? It, it, it seems, does it not, that 13.1 is describing a person for about ha- one half of the verse. And then it looks like it's describing an entity... For the remaining half, it might be two-thirds, one-thirds. For sure, the blasphemous name, that's describing a person. How about the ten crowns and seven horns? Or seven, uh, uh, the, I'm sorry, the seven heads, the ten crowns, and the ten horns. I got that out of order. <coughs> Excuse me. Same for verse 2. Verse 2 seems to be doing the same thing. Let me read it. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Is that the man, or is that an entity? Verses 3 and 4 seem to be directed to only the individual. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And the world marveled and followed him. That's talking about a guy. The point is, is that the monster that Satan summons from the abyss is described in the book of Revelation in two ways. One is as a world empire. Let me explain this. Whenever you're talking about the beast, the scarlet beast, you have at least these categories. World empire and person. Understanding how they differentiate becomes very important, figuring all this out. The seven heads, the ten... Seven heads, ten... Let me make sure I don't screw up the ten horns and the ten crowns. You can... Senility slipped right in there. The Antichrist is both an individual and an empire. Some of the language 
ascribes to the empire, some of it ascribes to the person, some of it is both. Knowing the difference becomes very important, the blasphemous name. goes over there. The empire was like a leopard. Bear. Lion. That's all Daniel 7, 8, 9, and 10. This is the imagery exactly of Daniel 7, 16 through 24. Seven heads, ten crowns, leopard, bear, lion. That's the empire. These are the components that identify the final world empire that is ruled by the Antichrist. The world has had empires that the Bible has pulled out and said, no, these empires, these empires are very important. Babylonian empire is one of those. No, these empires. And it assigns this imagery to some of those empires. The Greeks, for example, the Romans. The final world empire, there will be one empire that is the last one. That will be the one that the person, the Antichrist, is the ruler of. These are descriptions of elements or components or details of that world empire, and the other will be details and uh, descriptions of the person. So again, these are that which identify the, the final world empire ruled by the Antichrist. Next, the dragon gave him his power. Him his power. Dragon gave. That may look obvious to you, but what does that mean? Is him the same him his? Let me put it a different way. Is him his the same him his? Or is it a different him his? What have you decided? Is it a different him his or the same him his? All of those who think it's a different him his, never raise your hand here. What do I mean by that? If that made any sense to you at all, if you've understood the question, then uh, were you weird before you came to Cliffenstein or did Cliffenstein make you weird? That has been answered for you. How is it to be read? The dragon gave the Antichrist the dragon's power. Is that what you said? In other words, the dragon gave him. Is that, that's got to be the Antichrist, wouldn't you say? His power. Is that the Antichrist or the dragon? So I can read it either way, can't I? Does the Antichrist have a power of his own, on his own? So, the dragon gave the Antichrist the Antichrist's power, or the dragon gave the Antichrist the dragon's power? Which have you decided? If the dragon and the Antichrist are combining, is this the combining of that power? I've now taken the two of them. They each have power. One has incredible power. That would be the dragon. The other one has a, a amazing, we can't even begin to describe the power he has. And now they're combining together. How powerful are they? The dragon is entering the Antichrist. If he, and that's what he's doing. We should ask, why does he do it? Why does the dragon feel like he's got the combined power and make a single unit between him and the Antichrist? And what would be the answer? Where would you go to find the answer? You would go to find the answer where the, the dragon has done this before. Because the dragon does not go around just to, arbitrarily entering people. There's no record of him arbitrarily entering people. He only has done it once in all of recorded history. He did it in John 13, 27. What was the reason he did it there? Because the reason he did it in John 13, 27 is probably going to be the same reason he's doing it now in Revelation 13. I propose that Satan and the scarlet beast have a plan Clearly, they're going to kill the woman and, the, and her offspring. That's the plan. How exactly the plan is accomplished, that's another thing that we have to determine. I say it this way. How exactly the plan accomplishes the plan must be figured out. 
In both instances, what happened to John 13.27? Did I get that right? I keep confusing myself. 13.27, I should put that on the board for you on the Internet. And here at Revelation 13, where the dragon gave him his power. In both cases, I say to you, it's the same plan. It involves this unification of the red dragon and the one whom the red dragon empowers to accomplish, enact, activate the plan. Why is he doing it this way? We'll keep moving here. Almost punk and roll time. One of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. Okay, so I've kind of messed up here. But underneath the person, the Antichrist person, I have a mortal wound. Now, some people say, no, this belongs over here under the world empire. You'll see that all the time. One of his heads, as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all of the world marveled and followed the beast. Some people think 13.3, it's a hotly contested verse, there's much angst, but they have the position that the seven heads, the seven crowns, the, the, the animals, and the wound all uh, go to the world empire list. And I, I think that that's very difficult. If, if that's what you believe, let me just cover that really quickly. If that's the context that you see, that one of the seven world empires which has occurred in recorded history has had a mortal wound, and then that wound is now healed, this fallen empire is now revived. And, and again, many subscribe to the view, and they propose that this is what, what empire? They, they propose that this is the revived Roman Empire. This is problematic at best. I can't say that enough. The Roman Empire has split into two parts, east and west, and those two parts still are here. It never went away. So it can't be the revived Roman Empire. Well, they say to you, well, it's now the combining of these two, east and west. Rome eventually moved northward, as did Constantinople. I have Rome and Constantinople. Rome went northward into essentially France, and who became the new Roman emperor? The Holy Roman Emperor called himself that. Charlemagne and and Constantinople as the as the Turks as the Islamic nations began to expand it migrated up to Russia so the Caesars of Rome became the Holy Roman Empire Charlemagne and the Caesar of Constantinople transitioned into the Tsars of Russia and they're still there How interesting that Istanbul and Moscow once again are back together, right? Isn't that fascinating? Anyway, it would be historic indeed if the Roman combined empire reemerged, but would the entire world marvel over that? I think it says they all marvel. World marveled. We go, oh, isn't that cool? But would we marvel? We're not marveling over Israel as a world. Israel's come back. Assyria has come back. Kurdistan. I submit that it's more correct to put it underneath the person. And one of his heads, as though it had been smitten unto death. I think that is the correct verbiage. There's a Hebrew idiom there. And one of his heads, as though it had been smitten, slain unto death, and his death stroke was healed, and the whole earth wondered after the monster. I think it's more correct. Ultimately, 13.4 then, they worship the monster as God, saying, who is like the scarlet beast? Who is able to make war with him because one of, because he has this mortal wound and now he doesn't. The red dragon and the red beast are now worshipped as creator God because of something, and that something is the deadly wound was healed. Is anybody going to worship the revived Roman Empire as God? Because it reestablished itself. Let's all worship the revived Roman Empire. Doesn't make any sense to me. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Okay, it does mean it's wrong. Many now also suppose this to be a fake healing, but the evidence is very much in opposition to that. The most compelling is Revelation 5 6. 
I'll read it to you. As I looked, and behold, in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing as though it had been slain unto death. It's the same idiom. Is anyone here going to say that Christ did not die? Because if you do, your salvation now is in trouble. Did Christ fake his death? Well, they'll talk back to me and say, Satan can't do a real resurrection. But the language is identical. If it was a fake resurrection for the Antichrist, the language would be different in my view. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing as though it had been smitten unto death, slain unto death, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out onto all the earth. There's some omniscience there. The lamb is omniscient. Now, first note again, the idiom is, though it had been smitten, slain unto death. This phrase, this idiom, though not explicitly translated, is present in both of these verses. 13.3 Revelation, Revelation 5.6. Both is, are applied to uh, the Christ and the Antichrist. God in, in the flesh, he gave up his life. It was important for him to do so. It's part of his plan. The, the satanic Christ, the Antichrist, has something similar. Not the same. Christ has to give up his life. Why? Because it's impossible to kill him. You can't kill him. He's God. He has to do it. John 10, 18. He says, myself. I have to do this myself. He alone can lay down his life. It's impossible to kill God. In spite of the movies that you watch. It was not a fake death with Christ. It is not a fake death. Nor, that, nor can you take this language and imply a fake death in any part of it. The Antichrist suffers a mortal wound. As with the lamb, the beast resurrects. This is an important piece of information. We're going to have to solve this. How does this beast resurrect? The whole world sees him resurrect. And they go nuts. The lamb resurrects himself, John 2.19, John 10.18. The red beast can't do that. So how did it happen? The wording is identical. So the only conclusion is a, a resurrection of the Antichrist as it will occur. How did this happen? How is this accomplished? The world marveled and followed the beast and worshipped Satan and worshipped the beast. Not because the Roman Empire came back together. Worship. Consider the implications of that verse. Whatever it was that happened led to the worship of the dragon Satan. That's what it says. The world worshipped the dragon. They knew the dragon had something to do with the resurrection of the beast. Think about that a second again. They knew the dragon did it. They knew Satan did it. The whole world knew, when you ask anybody on the street, if you're one of these late night talk shows, who resurrected the, the Antichrist, they all said, Satan did it. The world worships Satan and the Antichrist because of it. And there's a, that means there is now in the world when this happens an awareness of the existence of Satan. Mankind must know of Satan's existence. Satan is no longer hidden in order for the worship, or for the world to worship him. He must be exposed and he is and he takes credit for this. Now some will counter this uh, conclusion that I just gave you with a, this complaint that the worship of the Antichrist is de facto worship of Satan by extension. But the, play, the text, I think, is plain. Satan is credited with the resurrecting of the dead monster. The world worships the dragon because the dragon gave authority to the Antichrist. And then they worship the Antichrist, saying rhetorically, who is like this guy? What does that mean, rhetorically? When they say, who is like the beast, the question implies the negative. No one is like the beast. They know the beast and Satan are combined. No one is like this. 
Who is able to make war? Let me reword it a different way. Who is able to kill the beast? What's the rhetorical negative implied? The negative is asserted. No one is able to kill the beast. If they know Satan exists, what else must they know? Yeah, if you know Satan exists, you know Christ exists. And you say, who can kill him? Nobody. Who is like him? Nobody. You know, the whole world knows, both sides are in plain view. And what did they do? They chose the beast. They worshipped Satan. The world is completely cognizant of who Satan is and who the beast is and who Christ is. It's only logical. You can argue with me after you get your piece of pumpkin roll. Next week, we're going to continue this topic and continue to investigate. I told you it was tough, didn't I? I told you it was long. Forty-five percent of you did not make it. That's okay. You still get forty-five percent of a pumpkin roll piece. Still right there for you. Let's rise and be dismissed.